Good morning, everyone. Blessing to see and worship the Lord with you. Uh, one announcement, we do have um, the roster out in front, and Trudy's asked that uh, if anyone wants to sign up, just look at it. If you want to sign up and you want to, please do so, because she is going to be sending it out shortly. So that's to the right of morning tea, that little table there. Is it a trapezoid table? Yes, a trapezoid. Yeah, a trapezoid. So we will have uh, a time of communion following the service. So if you're born again, follower of Jesus, you're welcome to come forward and receive of that. And it's a great time to uh, remember the Lord's death till he comes and to, to rejoice in our Savior who forgives, who, who has laid down his life for us, who is our king and our master. And it's so good to be mastered by him because he is loving and good and merciful and compassionate. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that you are our God, that you are Lord of all, the sovereign king of all things, who's created everything, who has called us, and we thank you that uh, you are kind and that you are generous, and we the, the words that we have in English just don't do you justice because you are beyond our comprehension and so glorious. And Thank you that a day is coming when we will see you face to face and we will know you as we are known and that we will abide with you forever. And I pray that we draw near to you even now, Lord, to hear you speak, that we would humble ourselves before you to consider your word and to take it to heart, to follow it, to obey it, and to apply it to our lives faithfully. And we pray that you'd fill us with your spirit, that we might comprehend what you're saying and just open our understanding, Lord, that we might draw near to you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in Genesis chapter 8, starting in verse 13. And Genesis, it's the first book. It's so vital in laying down truths vital to the Christian faith, that God who created all things, he has the power to judge and destroy. He has the power to save and deliver. And a big takeaway from the global flood in Genesis is not the scope of destruction, but the grace of God that he looked upon Noah who found favor in his sight, that God justly could have destroyed all things, but he saved Noah and his family. He delivered them, and the whole world was cursed due to sin, but he found grace in God's eyes, and through Noah's obedience and his family and the animals that went into the ark, life on earth was preserved, and that deliverance was really a foreshadowing of the salvation and eternal life that we have through Jesus Christ. And he gives us a new covenant that's based upon better promises, one established in his own blood. And we'll talk about that further. And the Bible is so full of signs that make us wonder and consider. I think of the people who saw Noah building this massive ship and just wondered, like, why? Why is he doing that? What is it? What's the purpose of it? And as they see animals congregating and coming uh, in groups to the ark, their curiosity would have been provoked. Like, what is the meaning of this? Signs point and direct to something else. Like, the sign itself isn't the thing. We rely on signs to direct us to a destination, to bring us where we want to go. And Noah's action to fear God, to trust and obey him, that's examples that we should follow. Those are like things that we ought to put into practice in seeking to glorify God. And the signs in Scripture, they ultimately point to Jesus Christ, 
who is our Savior. In him we place our faith. And you, people can be curious, right? Those people were curious, likely, um, because I think as human beings, we are naturally very curious. Like, have you heard the news? And you're like, what? We're, we're just curious to know something, to learn a new thing. The curious are not the saved. It's those who, are, who seek the Lord and trust in him. It's the faith that saves, not just curiosity. And so taking action upon that to seek the Lord and to, to walk in his ways and to honor him, that's uh, the, the path we should follow because Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Genesis 8, starting in verse 13. And it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked. And indeed, the surface of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife, and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every animal, every creeping thing, every bird, and whatever creeps on the earth, according to their families, went out of the ark. Last week we read about Noah sending out a raven and then a dove. And when they did not return, he knew that the land was dry. And when he turned 601, he removed the covering of the ark. He had opened the window before, and now he just removes the top of it. Likely much better view, much better ventilation, a lot more light coming in. And though it was dry, he didn't vacate the ark until two months later. So he was in the ark for almost, well, over a full year um, with those animals. And he w- by the command of God, he went into the ark. And at the command of God, he left the ark. So it wasn't like, okay, it looks dry, let's go. He, he waited until God directed him to go. I can't imagine the feeling of leaving that ark after being in it for over a year, a hulking ship that smelled like a zoo. I mean, literally. Uh, and, and they entered the ark in one location. It floated around and it came to rest on Mount Ararat in a totally different place, unfamiliar to them. If you could just try to imagine what that must have been like, where there's not a single person on the whole earth except you and your family, there's not a single animal to be seen or heard except the animals that you're familiar with because they were with you on the ark and now they are dispersing. So there's no smoke going up from the city nearby. There's no roads. There's no fences. There's no borders. There's no boundaries. There's no groups or, of people anywhere. There's no wailing of mourners or celebration of a wedding. There's just, it's silent. There's just wind and water and it's like you're pretty, feeling pretty alone as far as with people and animals, but they had the Lord. It's like the whole world was theirs to explore, to discover, to repopulate. There was this opportunity and responsibility to know God, to walk in faith and gratitude toward him who saved them alive. I think about all those people that chose to not enter the ark, how they missed out on an opportunity of life they would have given anything to have. Right, to have this new life on a renewed earth. And a proud man might look upon all the surrounds and say, all of this is mine. 
but not Noah, because he realized it was all God's. He was only there by his grace. It wasn't his to own. It wasn't his to claim. And how good to breathe fresh air again. How good to feel the sun and to see the light and the, the animals and the, the trees. Just the world that God had made. Verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. This is really a stunning development. Noah's been in the ark for over a year, and one might think that the first order of business is like, well, we need a shelter. God said to leave the ark, so we're not heading back to live inside, we're leaving and we need to be protected. We need to be, uh, have a, a safe place to live. But the first thing he does is he builds an altar to the Lord. And of the clean animals, we see the purpose for them or the way that he used them was to offer them as a sacrifice to God. He was not compelled by law to offer sacrifices, but he gave a free will offering to the Lord. And he took of every kind of clean animal and bird and offered them to God. And it says God smelled a pleasing or soothing fragrance. Now, barbecue does have an appetizing smell to some people. This is not talking about that, but really the fragrance of faith that he would respond freely to God by offering this sacrifice to him. It was a costly offering because these animals, we would all consider them critically endangered. If there's only seven of a particular kind left on earth, we would say, let's preserve that. We need to make sure that can repopulate. But no, he offered them of all, every clean animal he offered to the Lord. The, Noah's, the animals that he fed and watered and cared for, for all that time, he gave to God. The God who gave him life. And God determined he would never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the heart of man is evil from his youth. So God held no hope for man's um, uh, reformation, that he could reform himself, that he was actually good, but because the, the world had become corrupted, he also became corrupted. No, man was evil from the beginning. We see in a perfect world, Adam and Eve sinned. In a world without sin, they chose sin. Two brothers, Cain and Abel, one killed the other because his offering was rejected. God respected Abel and thus his offering because he had faith in him. Those who called upon the name of the Lord were few. Those who walked with him were even fewer. And even they had their faults because no one is perfect but God. They were flawed people, but they trusted God and their faith was accounted as righteousness. Only God's holy, righteous, and good in himself. In his mercy, God allowed man to walk the earth again and to repopulate it and to, to, to spread abundantly over the earth. And as much as we want to think that life depends upon mankind, it's God's choice to give life and to sustain it. It's he who created it. It's he who would cause those clean animals to procreate and as we'll see, he gave them as food in Genesis 9, starting in verse 1. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, 
Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air and on all that move on the earth and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. God blessed Noah and his family. He said, be fruitful and multiply. There's a fresh start on a renewed earth with some changes and a covenant. So this is quite different than when Adam and e- Adam began, right? Eve wasn't there. And he said, you know, of all these, of every tree in the garden, you may freely eat, just not the one in the midst of it. That was the only prohibition. But here, God begins to outline some things. Um, he would put the fear and dread of man on animals, essentially making them wild, that they would not be comfortable around people. And this was for their preservation because God was also giving them to people for food. He says, I've given them all into your hand for food. Human consumption. And he didn't separate animals into clean and unclean yet. That would come much later under the law of Moses. But the one directive he did give was not to eat the flesh with the life, that is the blood. So slaughtered animals were to be drained of their blood and that is the practice to this day. Everything that you buy in the shops will have been drained. Um, And the blood that keeps us alive, it's actually alive itself. In a human, the blood cells live for about 120 days, which is pretty remarkable. So they weren't to eat animals while alive. They were to be drained of their life, of their blood. And while eating meat was permitted, and they they were on the menu, it was by no means a requirement or a command. We read of people in both the Old and New Testament who chose not to eat meat. Um, so eating meat doesn't make you less or more spiritual. It doesn't confer holiness. Romans 14.3 says, Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. God originally gave man a vegetarian diet, and see what happened, right? Sin entered the world, and it wasn't because they were vegetarians. <laughs> that wasn't the point at all. The fact was that God was giving uh, man the opportunity to eat these animals. And it, so it's not eating meat that leads to sin or vice versa, but it was not to be eaten with the life, the blood. And we'll see why that's really important. Picking up in verse five. Surely for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast, I will require it. And from the hand of man, from the hand of every br- man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. Think of Cain and Abel bringing their offerings before the Lord. It was not long before Abel's blood was crying out to God from the ground because it had been shed when he was murdered by Cain. And God told Noah, I will demand a reckoning when blood is shed, the blood of man, because man is made in the image of God. So people, human beings, made in the image of God, there is a reckoning whether that life is taken by a person or by an animal. I will require it, God is saying. Cain didn't break a commandment when he killed his brother. There was no prohibition for that. That was not, it's like, God knew it would happen, but it had not come into his mind. It was not um, 
It was like that came hatred and wickedness and, and murder comes from the heart of men. Out of us comes such wickedness. So God made a clear distinction between the slaughter of animals for food and the murder of a human being because they're made in his image and he would require the blood. It says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. So the punishment for murder was death and this would require governance. It would require um, someone to actually do that, to determine if a murder had been committed and then to wield the sword to bring judgment. Previously, people did what they wanted and there was no oversight. There was no governance at all. People became increasingly wicked. So God said, man is accountable before me. Beasts are accountable before me when you kill another person. We live in a world that is really at odds with God over the sanctity of human life. Uh, We hear of murder every day. Paul wrote that believers were not to resist governing authorities that he had established to, uh, and appointed to bring judgment. And in doing so, you bring judgment upon yourself because that's God's, um, he has established that government. When I was in school in the U.S., and I think everybody who has gone to school, when you have those debates, there's certain hot-button subjects that you discuss. And this was always one in my school was capital punishment, the death penalty. Um, Should it be happening? Should it not be happening? Um, Romans 13, it says, Paul, Paul said that rulers are appointed from God, that they bear the sword. They do not bear the sword in vain. So it's like God's given them that responsibility to bear the sword, to make sure that justice is taken care of. And he explained why it's important in the book of uh, Exodus and uh, in, the, in Numbers as well, Numbers 35, 31 through 34, it says, Moreover, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. And you shall take no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the priest. So you shall not pollute the land where you are, for blood defiles the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. Therefore do not defile the land which you inhabit, in the midst of which I dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell among the children of Israel." So he said, there's no acceptable fine or ransom to be paid when you shed the blood of another human by murder. That the only way there can be atonement for the land is when the blood of the murderer is shed. That's the only way that atonement is possible. So no community service or fines or incarceration will pay the fine. That it can only be paid by the blood of the guilty. Now we in, in Australia, we're not under the covenant of law that God made with the Israelites. We live in a secular society from what I've read that non-religious is the largest group of people in Australia. Whether or people show regard for human life or not, we who fear God, we know God will demand a reckoning. He will see justice done. His judgment is perfectly accurate. It's eternally binding. The flood is really a foreshadowing of the judgment God will bring upon all murderers and all sinners. And the Bible teaches that the, through the revelation of Jesus that the standard God's hold, God holds people to is much higher than that of the law. In 1 John 3.15, it says, Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, 
and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So hatred, God looks upon that and says, that is like murder. That's in the same category as sin, uh, in the same category as murder. And we go, oh, that, I don't like that because uh, I would be guilty of that, right? <laughs> I would be condemned. Cain murdering Abel, that was evidence of murder in his heart, hatred, and he carried it out, and government, even if it doesn't wield the sword, if it chooses to sheath the sword, God will see to it. He will see to it. Hatred is a crime against God and others, and God will demand a reckoning, even if we're not guilty of taking the life of another person. So we must, we, we, when we're reading the Old Testament, it's important that we also consider what it says in the New Testament and in applying it to our circumstances. So God, he, he, he notices that blood that's being shed. Continuing in verse eight, then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him saying, and as for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Thus, I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy all the earth. God commanded Noah and his sons and the wives of his sons to bring forth abundantly to uh, have children. And from their line, the population of the whole earth was repopulated. And I'm like, you know, we all have Noah as a great, great, great grandfather. I really hadn't thought about that before. But hey, we are related in that way. God established this covenant with Noah. And God had alluded to this covenant before in Genesis 6.18. Now he explains what it is. And a covenant is an agreement. It's a promise that God would never again cut off all flesh by waters of the flood. He would not destroy the earth with a flood again. The flood, it was the most devastating, traumatic event in the history of the world until now. Like it was global. Only Noah and his family lived to tell about it. That's pretty remarkable when you think of the terrible things that have happened, and many people have lived to tell about those, but only Noah and his family lived to tell about it. And I imagine that every time there was a crack of thunder, lightning, the dark clouds, the rain pelting down, that their minds would go back to that day when the rain started falling and the flood started rising. And remember that awful devastation and that judgment. That landslip and earthquake, it would just bring back a memory of what had happened. When the river overflowed its banks in a season, they'd be like, whoa, let's find high ground, right? Let's, let's get to a safe place as they remembered the past. But God made a covenant. He made an agreement with them. He says, I'm never going to do that again. That was a one-off global deluge that I will not do again. Before it rained, he says, I'm going to cause it to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. It did. And then after the flood, he says, I'm never doing that again. The whole world is not going to be destroyed with a flood. So it's a promise to him and a promise to all of us. Verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For perpetual generations, I set my rainbow in the cloud. And it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. 
It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. God made this covenant and he put this sign in the heavens, visible for perpetual generations. So it's for everybody, for all time, that God would set his rainbow in the cloud. That whenever the rain was severe, the rainbow was a sign of God's remembrance. He's like, I remember what I said. I am not going to ever flood the earth again. I'm not going to destroy flesh as I did this in the flood. So it's an everlasting covenant made by a God who does not change, who loves mankind created in his image. And interesting, the Hebrew word for rainbow, it's the same word as used for bow, like a battle bow, a bow that you would use in fighting. And when you see a rainbow in the sky and it's got that arch, it's like the bow being hung up on hooks. It's like put away. So it's, it's hanging there. The battle is over. Matthew Henry had some really good insights on this. He says, as threatening afflictions abound, encouraging consolations much more abound. The rainbow appears when one part of the sky is clear, which intimates mercy remembered in the midst of wrath. It is a bow, but it is directed upwards, not toward the earth. For the seals of the covenant were intended to comfort, not terrify. So that picture of that bow, right, hung up, it's like, I'm not going to destroy, my arrows are not pointing at you anymore, um, it's to preserve you. And in a sense, it's God's response to that acceptable sacrifice of faith out of his own goodness. Because God smelled that sweet savor, and he says, you know, I'm never going to do that again. After judgment was meted out for sin, he made this covenant of peace and a promise that he would uphold, that he would remember, and he also put a sign that other people would remember and recognize it. God had not forgotten, and uh, we forget, don't we? We are the forgetful ones. We need notes and reminders and diaries, and there's whole industries built around reminding us of things, um, where you have like post-it notes. It's like, oh, and then there's so many post-it notes, you can't even remember which one's needed right now. Learning to recognize and understand signs is really important in our everyday lives. For those of us who drive or you're navigating public transport or you're in the airport, you, you need to look at the signage and be able to read them to know where it's directing you. Like, oh, I need to go to platform four, that, and that's over here. And so you look at the numbers and the, the arrow, and you, you follow it, and hopefully you find it or find someone to help you. And it's important we do the same with the rainbow. That it's more than just beautiful natural phenomena, but it's a reminder of the covenant that God's made with us, with people, with you, with the animals and the earth. And the, the rainbow is, is only visible from certain angles. And so when you see one, know that it's like it's just for you. That God's, the way that you're, you could say, call someone on the phone, do you see that rainbow? Well, no, I can't see it. I'm on, the, I'm on the other side of town. How could I see it? But oh, people in this whole area might be able to see it, but 
recognize that it's a sign from God for you. Remember his covenant. It's not a sign that you should go fishing or that you should change your careers. It means something. It actually means something in particular that God has promised not to destroy the earth with a flood again. That's what it means. That's what it stands for. And he's given you eyes to see. He's given you his word and he's established that covenant with you. Receive that and rejoice in it. When the prophet, I like in the song today that it actually said clothed in rainbows. I'm like, that's kind of cool. It's clothed in rainbows like God's peace. His, uh, yeah, he, he is a just judge, but he's also merciful and kind and he promises to preserve life. He seeks to save life. In the, the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah asked King Ahaz what sign you would like to see that will confirm God's word because he had just made a prophecy and Ahaz is like, he really wasn't a man who feared God at all. And so he says, go ahead, ask me, what sign should I do to, to prove to you that it's gonna come to pass? And he's like, oh, I won't ask a sign of God. And this is the response in Isaiah 7:14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and it shall call his name Emmanuel. So he's like, the proof that I am going to make good on my word to preserve the people of Jerusalem is that I am going to send a Messiah who's going to be born of a virgin. That will be a sign to you. Emmanuel, God with us, that there will be a man born to a virgin who is God. Now, there were many people when Jesus was born who did not believe that Mary was a virgin, though she was even as many do not attribute the rainbow you see in the sky to a promise or a covenant made by God. Because a lot of people did not believe in Jesus and they rejected him, he spoke of another sign in John 3, 14 and 15. He said, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Then he said further on in John 12, 32 and 33, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. So he pointed to the future of being lifted up, lifted up in crucifixion. He pointed back to an Old Testament sign. And he also pointed ahead to the death that he would suffer for the sins of the world. So if you want, you could turn in your Bibles to number 121. And this is the situation Jesus was referring to. God had brought the children of Israel out of Egypt with a mighty hand. He made a covenant with them. He said, I'll be your God. You be my people. Walk in my ways. And they said, yes, we will. As they journeyed, they grumbled. They murmured against God and against Moses. And they were discouraged. They expressed hatred for the bread God was giving them, that manna. They're like, oh, our soul despises this bread. Right? They're, they're eating, they're, they're being sustained day by day, and yet they hate it. So this is what happened. Numbers 21, 6 through 9. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. God judged the people for their murmuring and complaining against him by sending these venomous snakes amongst the people who bit some and they started dying. So they came to Moses and said, please pray to God that he'll take away these snakes. Moses prays to God, but God doesn't take away the snakes. He says, make a snake. Take that bronze serpent, put it on a pole. If anyone who's bitten looks at it, they will, if, if they see it, they will live. And that's exactly what happened. Simply looking at the serpent brought life. Jesus, he pointed to being lifted up on Calvary that whoever believes on him will have life, that they will have eternal life, that he would draw all people to himself. He's the living bread that came from heaven that people hated and they rejected and they murmured against him and they plotted to kill him. But all who trust in him and receive him will be preserved from the wrath to come and given eternal life by his atonement. He provides atonement. On the night before his crucifixion, Jesus and his disciples, they observed the Passover. And there was a lot of symbology in that meal. It commemorated the deliverance of the Hebrews from Egypt. They were slaves and how God preserved their firstborn and brought them out with a mighty hand. The Pharaoh 10 times had said, no, I'm not letting you go. The 10th time he did. And God commanded them before the 10th plague that they were to slaughter a lamb, take the blood and strike it upon the lintel and the doorposts of their homes and to eat that meal and to eat in readiness with unleavened bread, with some bitter herbs. And if you turn to Matthew 26, 26 through 28, we'll read what happened during this meal. Matthew 26, starting in verse 26. It's very fitting that we'll have communion today. It says this, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. As they're eating this Passover meal, which was an annual tradition, he put a different spin on it by pointing to what would shortly come to pass during his crucifixion. And so he took of the bread, he broke it, he handed it to them, and he said, this symbolizes my body broken for you. The cup, it represented his blood being shed for them. So they had always been looking back. They had been looking back about... um, that they were eating this unleavened bread. We drink these libations and these cups of blessing. But then Jesus pointed ahead and he started talking about what would happen and how this pointed really to him, that he's the lamb of God who gives eternal life, who delivers from slavery to sin and death. Amazing that the, the new life on a renewed earth began with Noah's sacrifice of faith And a new life for sinners begins by faith, by Christ sacrificed for us because we've trusted in him. He provided the atonement. 
That sweet savor of Christ's sacrifice, it lingers even until now. He rose from the dead. He provides forgiveness, eternal life. And he's given us this new and better covenant. Right? You have the covenant of the rainbow. You have the new covenant way of the covenant of law to Moses. And then you have the new covenant that's built on better promises. Uh, the new covenant of God's grace through the gospel. And the new covenant was revealed with the sign of Jesus being lifted up by him being crucified, by his death, resurrection, and ascension to heaven. Now we'll shortly receive communion together and we take of the, the bread that points to Christ's body broken for us. We drink of the cup, his blood is shed for us. And in doing that, we're doing a physical thing that's to align with the spiritual reality, that we have been born again. We have been given new life. We have received Christ, and so we're now receiving those by eating them, to saying, we've received him. We believe that he is the Son of God. So it's not by observing the Lord's Supper that you're forgiven or saved. It's by faith in Jesus alone that you're saved. And we do this in obedience to him as our Lord. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. And these are words written of the Messiah God would send and what he would accomplish. And I just felt led to go to this passage. And may we hear the Lord speak. So Isaiah 53, starting in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Incredible that Jesus, by his righteous sacrifice, could take the sin of the world upon him and provide atonement. And hear the word of the Lord. You believe that God has laid the sins of the world upon Jesus on Calvary. Do you realize what also was laid upon him in addition to your sin? It says here, your griefs, sorrows, afflictions, even sickness. That was laid upon him. Now you're pleased to be free of your guilt of sin and the power of sin over you. You rejoice in Christ's righteousness imputed to you by grace. But realize that the power of the grief and the sorrow and the affliction, it need not have that over you anymore because you are born again. The atonement has been made. And so you don't need to be ruled by those things anymore. Yes, we still sin we still grieve. We still face affliction and illness. But why do you think that they should be a cross you should bear when Christ has shouldered that for you? He has done it. So may we confess and repent of our attempts to shoulder what Christ shed his blood to deliver us from. We have a new life a life where we're no longer mastered by our griefs and our sorrows and our sin, but now we have Christ and he has us. So please receive that.
with renewed faith based on his word, let's draw near to him. Let's receive his love, grace, and mercy who heals us with joy. I'd like to invite the worship team forward and we'll have a song. And during that song, please come forward and receive of the bread and the cup. And then once we've all received and the song's over, I'll lead in a prayer and we'll partake together. And let's pray. Father, thank you so much for taking the sin of the world upon your shoulders, for shedding your blood so that we could be purchased and redeemed, that you provided the atonement we could not provide, and you have given us eternal life through faith in Jesus. Lord, thank you that Jesus carried our griefs, our sorrows, our afflictions, and our iniquities, that those were all placed upon him and we have overcome through him. And thank you for your grace, Lord, that you have looked upon the world with compassion, that you have shown us mercy, that you've given us hope in a hopeless world, in a world that uh, the judgment is reaching up to heaven. And yet you are merciful and you are kind and you have remembered your covenant. You have never again flooded the earth with water to destroy it again. And we thank you, Lord, that you have preserved us, that you help us and comfort us. Thank you for the acceptance we have and I pray that we would humble our hearts before you to receive you, to trust you, to believe you and the things that we cannot do that we, we recognize you can do. That we cannot cast away our griefs and sorrows and afflictions. And yet, in you we can because it's you who does the work. And so we come to you, Lord, humbly, joyfully, um, and just mindful of, of your goodness. So grateful. Lord, thank you for my brothers and sisters here in this opportunity to partake and to remember and proclaim the Lord's death until you come. And come quickly, Lord Jesus, we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.